The Lord said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to others. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The people who seem to have it all are the ones who drive me crazy. Now, you all are good and faithful and kind people. You're here in church on Daylight Savings, so you're really good and kind and faithful people. So you don't know what it's like to feel like I feel like about these kind of people. But when they go parading all their successes, all their perfections, it just kind of gets me all sorts of frustrated. It's even worse when the people in question claim to be Christians. These are the type of people who get on social media and they brag about all the blessings God has rained down upon them while giving you a tour of their $1.5 million house. (laughs) They're the people who, after experiencing some apparently divine miracle, start raking in the dough from making the right investment, and then they say, Ah, I just got back from traveling to Borneo, and it's nice to be back here in Virginia. They're the type of people who make it seem like being a Christian means there are no problems, there's no fights with spouses, there's no disagreements with kids, there's no bills to be paid, no medicine to take, so long as you invite Jesus into your heart. People like the prophet Joel. Not Joel from Scripture, but my best friend in the whole wide world from Houston, Texas, Joel Osteen. (laughs) Joel Osteen, who promises... So long as you pray, so long as you read your Bible, you will be healthy and you will be wealthy. Some of the most faithful people I've ever met are the poorest and the sickest people I've ever known. So what about other Christians? What about those who are dealing with poverty and those who are dealing with hunger? What about the family that shows up in church only to get in their car and continue the fight that they paused when they pulled into the parking lot? What about that person who sits in the pews week after week feeling less and less sure about this thing called faith. Now, miracles do happen. Don't get me wrong. The least fortunate can become the most fortunate. After all, Jesus did say, I came, that the last will be first and the first will be last. It just seems like sometimes those who go from being last to first want us to believe that they got there all on their own, which is complete B, S. It's absurd. No one is self-made. Everyone is the product of somebody else. And even though we know it's absurd, we can't help ourselves from consuming it with reckless abandon. We're suckers. We're suckers for the supposedly self-made fortunes, the get-rich-quick schemes, and the just-take-this-pill-and-you'll-lose-all-your-fat babble that we hear about on television. And frankly, if we want to live into those narratives, if we want to consume those narratives, we are more than welcome to do so. They just don't really have anything to do with Jesus. Every single verse in the Bible is important. Every single one. That's why week after week, somebody stands up here in this place and they read the scripture and they end by saying, the word of God for the people of God. And we all say, thanks be to God. It's because we believe in being thankful for what we've heard. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some scriptures that it's very hard to say thanks be to God afterwards because they're really difficult or they're really challenging. We're not sure what to make of it. But as Christians, we believe this book called the Bible continues to speak new and fresh and life-giving words every time we read it. 
Every verse is important. Some are even more important than the rest. And what was read for us today, what Bob read for us today, though short to the point, this call of Abram, it contains some of the most important words in the entirety of the Bible. The Lord said to Abram. Now that might not seem like much. The Lord said to Abram. But if we believe that to be true, then everything else falls into place. Like most books, we learn how to read the Bible. Some of us are taught explicitly by a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. Some of us learn it implicitly. We just sort of picked it up along the way. There are a great many ways to read the Bible. And the way we read it can make a tremendous difference. The two primary ways of coming to the text, the two primary ways of reading it or hearing it, are what we call anthropologically or theologically. Now, before I lose all of you to a 1137 nap on Sunday morning for using words like the ones I just did, bear with me. All those words mean is that we can encounter the Bible as if it's entirely about humanity and only about humanity, or if it's entirely about God and only about God. How we read the Bible is a big deal, and it comes down to our grammar. Now, again, it's daylight savings time, and I'm talking about grammar on a Sunday morning, so I apologize. However, the grammar of faith, it communicates more about who we are and whose we are than we can possibly realize. And the grammar here in Genesis 12 is exceptionally important. It's because God is the subject of the verb. The Lord said to Abram. If God is the subject of the verb, it means that God is the main character of the story. And if God is the main character of the story, then friends, I'm sorry, we are not. The story of the Bible is, of course, this great tale of God with God's people. But more often than not, we read the Bible as if it's only a story about who I am. What it means for me, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. And the more we use the Bible to focus on ourselves, the less we realize that God is the subject of the verb. And we don't like that. We don't like it one bit. And so we change the grammar. We make it all about me, 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 me. We do it when we're lay people. We do it if we're clergy. We do it in the pulpit. We do it in the classroom. And it can be devastating. I can remember going off to college being there for my first couple weeks, and I got this little pamphlet under my door that said, hey, if you're a Christian, come join with other Christians on your college campus. Keep the faith, da 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 all this stuff. And so I went. It was a new, strange world. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I went to church when I was at home. I wanted to be around Christians, and so I went. We were in this big auditorium. Band was playing, familiar songs. We said familiar prayers. And then a woman got up to speak, and she read this passage from Genesis 12 about Abram going off into a strange land. She went on and on that night about how Abram was faithful. Abram kept the faith going where he didn't know he was going. She talked about how Abram is an example to all of us whenever we encounter something new or strange and different. She kept returning to this one singular idea that no matter how difficult college life might feel like, we had to keep the faith. We had to stay the course. We had to be like Abram. Strangers in a strange land. I know she meant well. I know she believed in what she was saying. The only problem was that most of us were already feeling pretty nervous about school, and now it was ten times worse. 
She left us thinking about our faith as if it was being put to the test, and that only if we held fast to our moral convictions that we would remain, as she put it, sheep of Jesus' flock. I mean, I can remember her saying, you don't want Jesus to leave you behind, do you? It was all about us. And it had almost nothing to do with Jesus. Whether we're college freshmen or not, we're all functioning narcissists. We think the world revolves around us. We want to know only how things will affect me. And we act as if the entirety of the cosmos is resting on our shoulders. And that's exhausting. For some reason, bad theology mostly, we read the story from Genesis 12 as if Abram is somehow special, that he has some sort of perfect characteristics, that he is holy, which is why God has affection for him. There has to be something unique and profound and special about Abram that led to God wanting to bless the world through him. But the truth is, we don't know squat about Abram at this point in the story. At least Noah was a good man before he got to build the ark. The only thing that we know about Abram at this point is that he's the son of Terah, he's married, and his wife is barren. That's it. And yet those details are everything. They are everything because these two people carry absolutely nothing significant about them. And what happens from this point forward is that God does miraculous things in the lives of two people who had no potential for anything on their own. God chooses nobodies to bless the world. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that brings me great comfort. Because if God could bless the world through two people who had no hope in the world at all, then maybe God can do something even through someone like me. Or maybe someone like you. Again, notice the grammar. It's not you that will change the world. It's God through you. God is the one who blesses the world through Abram and Sarah, not the other way around. God is the one who makes a way out of no way. God is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Nothing is impossible for God because God is the subject of the verb. If it were all up to us, if it were all on us, then we would fail. We can't bless the world because we're too concerned with blessing ourselves. We can't fix the world because we're so fixated on our own problems. We can't redeem the world because we're the ones who need redemption. We can't even keep our promises. But God does, always. That's a really crazy thing to think about. Whether you're hearing it for the first time or the thousandth time, God keeps God's promises. It's true. There's a, there's a man named Lenny Duncan. He's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, at a church that has rapidly grown while he's been there. He's a gifted speaker. He's sought after across the country as someone who can speak the truth about the role of the church in the 21st century. Uh, he wrote a book I'm reading right now called Dear Church. But the fact that Lenny became a pastor is completely a miracle. It's a miracle because he had a far greater chance of ending up in prison than behind a pulpit. He's a former drug dealer, sex worker, homeless queer teen, and also he's a felon and a pastor. He tried church again and again when he was younger. And every time he went to a new church, he left feeling worse than he felt when he arrived. He was told 
Sunday after Sunday, explicitly and implicitly, that he was not enough. That he had to correct himself before he came to the Lord. That he needed to take a good, hard look in the mirror to find out if he was really worthy of Jesus' love. Now, if you're any of those things, addicted to drugs, living on the street, a felon, if someone tells you you're pretty damaged, there's no good in you, you know what that leads to? Not faith. More of the same. Which is what happened to him. Until one miraculous day, he went into a church. A church just like any other church. He sat in the front pew with his backwards ball cap on, listening to all the uh, church members whispering about him behind his back. But this time he heard something different. Not a different sermon, not a different prayer, not a different hymn, but a different invitation. You see, that Sunday the pastor stood behind the communion table and the pastor said, This is Jesus' table. And Jesus made no restrictions. So come. There was no membership meeting, no checking of theology, no friendly talk with the pastor ahead of time about whether he was invited or not invited. He was welcomed by Jesus, not the pastor, not the church, not the church members. He was welcomed by Jesus. And for him, that was revolutionary. He says that when he walked down the aisle, he says, tears welled up in my eyes as I walked forward. This welcome to the table was something I had never experienced in my life. It awakened the shadow side of my relationship with God that I hadn't had the courage to look under. It was like a knife that cut through instantly all the years of shame and brokenness, and it released me from those bonds. I felt free. Grace is like a knife. That invasion of an invitation, it changed Lenny forever. It changed him because instead of being invited to change, instead of being invited to transform, instead of being invited to get your life together, he was invited by God who works changes in us that we could not or would not on our own. Right then and there, coming to the table, he changed forever. Not because he had all the prerequisites, not because he went to the right school, not because he had the right morals or the right faith, but simply because God delights in making something of our nothing. God chooses nobodies to change the world. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.